Now we don't have any value. Hello everyone and welcome to Death Sentence. It's funny how we've stopped saying that on the joint episodes. I guess Langdon and I like the cold opens too much to do like the official introduction, but maybe we'll bring it back. This is going to be another solo episode, which I'm recording for two reasons. One, because the main one is that I really want to talk about this book and I've been building up to talk about it for a while now since I needed some distance from it because it was a very emotional and overwhelming read for me and secondly because we're busy at work on reading the book of the new sun and preparing the episodes for that there's a lot of prep work and research going into those episodes seeing as we're you know, going to be tackling one of the most intricate works of science fiction ever, perhaps. So this is, you know, quote-unquote, to buy us some time. The book that I want to be talking about today is A Stranger in Olandria by Sophia Samatar. And it's an interesting book for many reasons. But one is how it seems to be very popular in certain circles, but also underrated more widely. So in the circles of magic realism or contemporary fantasy, you know, the space is opened up by people like Ursula Le Guin, but also Angelica Gordichel, whom I've mentioned many times on the cast, and we should probably do an episode on her very soon. But also many others, you know, this book has been quite popular. But it hasn't, you know, um, it's achieved wide recognition because we'll get into the awards that it won in a second. But I haven't heard it on a lot of people's lips outside of those circles, which is a shame because it's a magnificent book. As I said, it was written by Sophia Samatar, who has a pretty interesting biography, which I think also influenced the book itself. While she's an American writer and poet and educator, she currently works at the James Madison University as an assistant professor of English. She, her father is Somali in heritage, and he's also an historian and a writer, Saeed Sheikh Samatar. But her mother is of Swiss-German descent and is a Mennonite while her father is Muslim. Her parents actually met in Somalia, in Mogadishu, and Samatar herself has spent time and has been educated in many different places. She has um, a Bachelor of Arts in English, but also a Master's in African Languages and Literature, which is very interesting, and a PhD in Contemporary Arabic Literature. So this sort of milieu of influences is very much present in A Stranger in Alondria, and one of the reasons that it became popular is because it offers, I wouldn't say a decolonial perspective on fantasy, but for sure a post-colonial one, where 
other tropes and metaphors and ideas that are not Western and seem odd to Western readers are centrally figured. You know, it's not just, oh, the islands in the East where the mysterious other cultures live, which is a sin that many fantasy writers commit, some writers that I like included. Instead, the weird other culture is the empire, is the center of the setting, and a lot of the peoples that might be perceived as, well, certainly Caucasian in the original ethnic meaning, as in from the Caucasus Mountains, are marginalized and the other to this empire. So it's a very interesting perspective in that regard of the influences which inform it, and it's also an extremely well-written book. And sort of like the intro that I gave Kidge Johnson in my previous solo episode, Samatar's style is very much in that same sort of fashion or mode where simplicity and a simpleness of language and a straightforwardness of language is used to convey the magic realist setting. And make no mistake, this is a magic realist book. We kind of sort of covered what that means when we were talking about Johnson, but here it has colorings that are more familiar to people who might have read Ursula Le Guin, or again, Angelica Gordischer and her Kalpa Imperial, right? Well, the magic realism is in the culture all around us, in the different beliefs of people in, in the world and how they see God's physical phenomenon, the afterlife books, which figure pretty heavily in this, in this book, magic, but also food and houses and streets and cities and commonplace things which are infused with this realist magic. And the simple language makes it realist, right? It's not, you know, Nietzschean warlocks on a tower channeling lightning and summoning creatures from the beyond, but rather folk tales and powers and histories and meanings that are better served by a common, you know, quote-unquote, low form of language, right? Kind of conveys that everyday sensation of it in a better, in a better way. So without further ado, let's jump into the book and talk about what I liked about it and what we can glean from it. So shortly, to cover the story, we follow Jevik. I really hope that's how you pronounce it. There are a lot of very non-Western names in the book that are hard to you know pronounce from reading them. And he is the son of a wealthy merchant in this area called the Tea Islands that are in the West. These are you know, very clearly referencing something like the West Indies, or rather how the West Indies might have been perceived by Europeans when they set out on, on their journey. So think about an archipelago of many islands, each with their own traditions that kind of overlap, but also have different ideas about, you know, gods and spirits and belief and stuff like that. And, you know, there are distant rumor for people who might live in the imperial core in Olandria, which is the imperial core. Um, they sell spices and tea and, you know, exotic, quote-unquote, goods of the, of the same nature. And Jevik's father 
is a very respectable figure because he takes a boat to Bane, which is the capital city. Think of Byzantium, Istanbul, Constantinople, however you want to call that, you know, city of cities in the center of the world where all trade flows through and from it. That's the same kind of vibe. This super expansive, storied, mythical, imperial center. At an early age, Zhevik's father hires a tutor for Zhevik um, to teach him how to read and write, which is something that most people in the Tea Islands don't know how to do. And in fact, similar to other cultures where reading and writing is not as central as Western cultures or even Eastern ones, right? Like the Chinese one, which, you know, um, centers writing and reading very much. Writing and reading is a form of magic for the denizens of the island, right? It's a way to, you know, with symbols, conjure thoughts. This is interesting because Samatar has also talked in the past about her um, admiration for Tolkien. And Tolkien had a lot of things to say about the relationship between language and magic. In fact, has said in the past that language is magic in the sense that when you read the word or when you say a word, you conjure the concept into your mind but you you do conjure it's just a concept but you conjure it like when i say that something is yellow i'm conjuring the color yellow in your mind right which is a form of magic this is very much the way that you know the locals of the tea islands view it uh fast forward a bit i won't spoil the entire book but fast forward a bit jevik's father um passes away and he takes over the business and goes to olondria He's something of a specimen, though, right? In the colonial sense, he's someone from this, you know, uh, far away and perceived as backwards region of the world. And yet he speaks Olandrian. And even more than that, he's well read. He's read philosophy and poetry and law and mysticism and other sorts of books. On the way to Olandria, Jevik meets a woman who is dying from a very painful and incurable disease. This woman um, eventually goes on to die off screen, but proceeds to haunt Jevik. And she haunts him because she wants him to write the life the story of her life, sorry, in a velon. Velon is the Olandrian word for book. Because if Jevik writes her life story, she believes that that will give her, give her some sort of catharsis, some sort of maybe eternal life, some sort of presence um, beyond death. The problem is that People who are haunted used to be saints in the Olandrian religion, right? They used to be, you know, those classic um, poets slash martyrs of, you know, many religions. And their ability to communicate with the afterworld was seen as a curse, but also as a blessing. It's a curse because spirits, you know, in, in this setting, invade 
our reality. It's very difficult and painful to communicate with them. They manifest as forms of light and sound and sensations, which is what starts to happen to Zhevik, right? It's very hard for him to hide that fact. Um, Jizavet, which is the name of the girl, arrives in his life and, and shatters it completely. He's racked with pain. He passes out sometimes for days at a time, all because she keeps basically screaming at him in this ghostly manifestation in the language of their home to write the book. Thing is, I, I said that it used to be considered as sainthood to communicate with spirits, but there's a new religion that is taken hold in Olandria, um, the religion of the stone, the book of the stone, where such hauntings are anathema. And those who are haunted by these things are seen not as, you know, mediums and communicators with ghosts, but as mentally ill. And they are hospitalized um, against their will in the Grey Halls, supposedly a place for healing in the center of the capital, in the royal complex of the capital. But in fact, just a place you go to die, basically, to while away your days so that you don't spread this belief in hauntings and their power. And that's where Zhevik's journey really begins. He starts to escape from the authorities, all the while wrestling with this spirit, but also piercing deeper and farther into the past of Alondria's tradition. And this is where the comparison to Ursula Le Guin's The Telling becomes very useful. If you've read that book, if you haven't, you absolutely should. Ursula describes it was her analogy to China's cultural revolution. And there's a lot of critiques to be made about, you know, Western women writing from a Western perspective about the Chinese revolution, which was very complicated and had good sides and bad sides and had atrocities committed, but also, you know, um, catapulted the people into the present and, you know, had, had a lot of complexities to it. But in the book, she describes a planet where in the capital, religion and tradition and belief is suppressed in favor of technocracy and capitalism and individualism. And as a result, religion disappears into the rural communities, preserved in texts, memorized and kept by the people there. And this is also what's happening in Samatar's Stranger in Olandria. The capital is in the throes of this new belief system, which is very, very much a science, right? It comes from this stone, supposedly this divine object, but it's very rational and wants to um, control and introduce hierarchy into religion. But the rural areas, the deeper you go into these uh, you know, river basins and valleys and mountains which are remote from the central authority, the more you find people believing in the old religion and the more Zhevik gets acquainted with Olandrian tradition. Until, at some point in the book, again, I'm trying to spoil as little as I can, but I can't not talk about one of the last pieces of the book, he, he gives up. He finds a place to settle on the borders of this wasteland. He finds this abandoned villa and he sits down to write the Velon, to write the death story of Jizavet. 
And it's basically its own book within the book. It's called the Ananedet, the Anadnedet, sorry, which I, if I recall, is your life story, right? That's what that word means, although I could be wrong. It's been a few months since I read this. And there's another book in there, which is the life story of Jezevet. And Jezevet was born in a different part of the islands, again, to a very traditional and animistic sort of culture, where she contracted this disease, which means death, right? And it also means it's kind of like leprosy, right? You become cursed and everybody um, shuns you, partly because this disease really is very contagious and partly because of superstition. But instead of giving up, her mother and her try to make it to Alondria, where supposedly this disease can be cured which is where she meets Jevik. So what is so good about this novel? First of all, let me just say, um, I, fo- I forgot to say it originally, it won the British Fantasy Award for Best Novel, the World Fantasy Award for the body of her work, the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, and the Crawford Award, and she was also a finalist for the Locus Award. So lots of um, recognition. Her short story, Selkie Stories Are For Losers, was a finalist for the Nebula and the Hugo Award and the British Science Fiction Association Award and the World Fantasy Award. So it's not exactly um, a well-kept secret, right? She's been recognized for work and rightly so. So so what is so good about A Stranger in Alondria? First of all, in all of these magic realist histories or even travelogues because this is very much a travelogue just kind of like Ursula Gwynn's The Telling right well the the physical movement deeper into the rural areas coincides with this movement deeper into the history and the myth of the societies that we encounter these sort of books live and die by the richness of the setting right you are meant to feel the same depth of time the same sensation of, you know, moving through, not the ruins, but the remnants of the past that is trying to be suppressed. And the writer has a very hard, very hard job to create that sort of sensation, right? It needs to feel organic. It needs to feel expansive, right? It needs to feel like there's always more around the corner. And Samatar does this brilliantly using a few mechanisms, but mostly by giving all of the books that Jevik reads and all of the authors that he reads, not only names, but also personalities. So that when she quotes from the books that Jevik reads or refers to a specific author, you already feel as if you know that person, right? And, and the quotes from them always match up. So if there's one author that is known for, you know, being very poetic and verbose in their writing, that will come across in all of their samples, right? In all of the quotes that you might might find. And that there's many of them. There's Fanle was the wise, and he was a theologian of Avelai, which is the religion that's being suppressed. Um, and he writes about Kuidva, the god of words. There's Tala of Yenith who's said to have kept her books in an iron chest that could not be opened in her presence, else she would lie on the floor shrieking. There's 
Ravathos, who is a poet, like the most celebrated poet of Olandria. There's Hothra of Urbrom, and there's many, many, many others. Eluthwi the Voyager, which is a mythical hero, and so on. And there's one name that constantly recurs, and in the beginning it recurs innocently, like you don't understand this name, you should pay attention to more than the others. Leia Tevorova, who is a mystic, and she's a mystic, you know, she's locked away in this tower to meditate by herself on her life and belief and so on, and only later do you realize that she suffers from the same condition as Jevik. Um, right, she's haunted by this ghost, and she's sort of like a saint slash cursed person. And the more the book goes on, the more we are, you know, um, exposed to her ideas and her thoughts, and they become a counterweight to Jevik's experiences. Right. So just from this smattering of names, and if you read the book, there's many more, and there's also snippets of novels and poems and um, mythical tales inside this book. You start to feel as if this world is alive, right? If there's like a scholarship of Olandria, and Jevik is such a scholar, he is more familiar with his people than most Olandrians, right? Like imagine if I don't know, choose your choose your nationality. For example, for me, you know, I haven't read a lot of um, Maimonides, for example, and if some scholar of him from a completely different country started talking to me about him, he would know much more than I would, right? Even though he's part of my, quote-unquote, Jewish heritage, right? And that's kind of what's happening with Jevik. He arrives at the city and he expects everyone to love these books and these stories just as much as him, but most of them haven't even read them. On the flip side, Jevik is unfamiliar with most of current-day culture in Bain, right? And Samatar does this really, really well. This tension between familiarizing yourself with a culture from reading their books and intellectually coming to meet them and actually living the culture that you're studying, right? And how much of a gap there can be between these two things. So... Jevik is familiar with some cultures in Bain, like the kebma, which is a type of bread that you eat at dusk, um, which you know, kind of ends the day and it's a time for everyone to relax and, and go home and spend time with their family. But he's not familiar with the festival of birds, which is a sort of bacchanalia that happens across Bain, where, you know, like these events in actual history, social roles are reversed, everybody gets drunk, masks are worn, um, sexual acts are performed for the city, and he gets swept up in this unfamiliar tradition, and that's when the haunting begins. It's unclear whether it's because of the festival. The festival is connected with Avalai, Avalei, perhaps, A-V-A-L-E-I, which is the former religion, right? It's currently being suppressed, and it's possible that through the meeting with this goddess, and you can read it as figuratively, or you can read it as literally, as the goddess actually manifesting to him, that the haunting of Jevik begins. And this becomes even truer the more he goes into these rural territories and understands that there's a richness of life and a richness of tradition not maintained in his books. Right? His books don't tell the full story. There's an entire culture that is unwritten. 
And that's the second thing that this book does incredibly well. It is almost a history, right? Zhevik is writing the story from his own perspective, telling us of his travails, supposedly a sort of journal. But it does feel, because Zhevik is an intellectual and an historian, it does feel like a history. But it's not told from the perspective of, quote-unquote, history makers, right? Rich, old, um, not white, but hegemonic, dead men. They are hinted at. There's royalty, and Jevik hangs around in the empty palace. Royalty is super weird, by the way. And they have this, it's kind of like hinted that maybe they're otherworldly or alien in some way. Although that might be the Book of the New Sun influences talking here. Um, but they're, they're kind of in the background. And most of the characters that this book discusses are poor. Um, Jezevet is for sure poor. She's like, she's the son of this daughter, sorry. She's the daughter of this powerful shaman or priest. But they live in this dejected hut, even though he used to come from richness. Um, Jevik is also, he's rich on the tea islands, but in Bain he's this you know, bottom of the rung foreigner with literally no rights and very little to his name. But also it keeps going in these rural communities. He meets these families that, you know, have just what they have on their farm and nothing else. And their poorness is described in very interesting ways. It's not romanticized. It is still difficult and people die at a young age and people get disfigured and have incurable diseases and stuff like that. But there's also a power to them, a strength to them, something to be admired in their contrast to Bane, right? to the city that has forgotten itself, is repressing its own traditions, is losing its story, whereas they are, you know, word of mouth in oral traditions, maintaining the way that they have lived for um, thousands of years. So as, as Jevik goes deeper into this territory, we also feel as if we're being immersed in this endless, majestic, warm, common, magic-realist tradition of these people. And that's, again, to, to tie back to what I said in the beginning, um, very much aided by the simple language that Samatar uses in this book. People talk to each other as if they're people. They tell stories as these stories are written, not in you know fancy languages and word games and registers, but as a people would tell stories to each other. Right? If you think about folk tales, they're not exactly known for their literary flourishes. And there's a reason for that. They're simple because they're trying to convey a story, a lesson, a warning, morality, just shared culture, right? They need to be accessible and they need to be easy to memorize and easy to translate. A similar thing also happens to Jevik as he goes deeper into these lands and experiences these stories, his relationship with them starts to change. When in the beginning of the book, he was an observer, you know, someone hearing or reading about these stories, he now becomes a participant in them. Because he is this saint, martyr, tortured kind of figure, 
he starts to fit in into these stories. People are telling stories about him. His name starts to precede him. When he arrives at all sorts of places, they are already aware of who he is and they're already ready to request the things, miracles and interventions, that are usually requested from the saint, this haunted person, right? And they start to um, deal with him with honor and respect and also some fear. He himself starts to focus more on local mythical stories rather than philosophy and religion and theology and so on the deeper that he gets acquainted with this culture the more that it transforms his own understanding of what it means so this is what we can say about you know jevik's part of the story but which is which is great and fantastic and it's it would have been an amazing book if it was quote-unquote just that story but what really elevates this book into the realm of excellence is the story of jezevet as she tells it to jevik her her life story it's simply put some of the best pages that i've read in a book in a long time it's not that long i didn't count but i would estimate it's 60 pages and it tells the story of jezevet's childhood her family, how she ends up getting infected, what happens when when that occurs, her family history as she starts to drift backwards in, in time, you know, metaphorically because of her illness, and eventually um, why and how she sets out for Bane herself. And it's incredibly sad and morose i think would be the adjective as these magical realism tales often tend to be right there's a sensation in most magical realist stories of nostalgia right nostalgia tinged with melancholy for a world that has been lost traditions that have been broken tales that are of a of another time right maybe it doesn't have to be that way but that's how it reads to me, you know, someone living, you could argue whether I'm living in the imperial core or not, but certainly near to the imperial core, where these traditions are not exactly celebrated, right? Where hierarchical religion is more common, and of course, techno-capitalism and everything that comes with it. And, and I believe this is also the intention of also Le Guin. Of course, if you read the telling, that's it's literally said in the book, um, Samatar, Gorodisher, and even going back to Borges or Marquez or Saramago, these writers of, you know, um, uh, Iberian or Latin American magic realism, there's this sensation of a world lost. And in, in the story of Jezevet, that that is very much the case. The The individual story of the protagonist is, is sad enough, right? Um, it's a story of, you know, how unfair life can be, how these diseases and prejudice and bigotry can strike someone's life out of the blue without any reason or explanation and also what that does to a person right it makes her cruel it makes her jaded it makes her rail against a world which she sees as unfair in a society which she sees as bigoted um and and she's right in many ways uh, out of the fear that motivates them of this disease the people around her abandon her and her family well they once were central to their story 
But beyond just the individual tragedy, there's also a, a tragedy of distance, a tragedy of, you know, stories and ways of living which are viewed as inferior, as outdated, but are actually, you know, wonderful and beautiful and have interesting and fascinating things to tell us about the world around us. Um, and again, this is all conveyed through that simple language, right? Through that small story, through the story of a person and what's happening to them, we get the sensation, this theme of regret and loss and history and, and time slipping away. So I want to read you a paragraph from her story, Jezebeth's story. And this is after she's sick and describes how her father um, takes care of her. It's pretty long, so bear with me. When I am very sick, when it's hard to breathe, my father sits beside me. He stays for as long as I want him, all day, all night. He sings to me. He tells me stories. He traces each one of my fingers over and over. The thumb, the pointing finger, the long one. He tells me everything he can think of, helps me sit up and lie down, invents a hundred games to deaden the pain. He lets me lie with my face toward the doorway so that I can look out and we can count the birds that go past and make up those stories. I see his face in the subtle indoor light, a light that is delicate even in the heat of the day, moth-colored, protected. I see that he is suffering. There are lines going deeper beside his mouth. He's aging. I can't bear it, and I weep. Crying makes it worse. He can't endure what's happening to me. For his sake, I stop crying, pretend it's nothing. I smile at him and reach up to wipe the tears which have trickled into his sparse beard. I dry his face with my hair and we laugh. The smallest things are enough to give us hope on such long days. We discover whole worlds in the tint of the sky through the doorway. My father plays his flute. The sound is sweeter than the ripple of rain and sometimes the rain accompanies him and shelters us under its curtain. So you can see my point about the simplicity of the language used here. Well, yes, there are some sentences in what I just read that are more complex, you know, separated by commas and have multiple descriptions of an experience. The words used are very down to earth. It's a very common sort of vocabulary. And the emotions described are described in straightforward ways. And that's the case for the main story as well. And especially Jesuits part of it. So that's it. What do I want you to take away from this? Well, there's this idea that these simple stories are somehow limited. You know, they're powerful for what they are. They tell simple stories well, but they don't access something bigger, something literary, something metaphorical. And I just think that's wrong. I think in these short stories, 
small stories, not short in the sense of, you know, page count, because this is a full novel, but short and small in the sense of the stories that they tell, especially in the context of fantasy and even science fiction, have a great power to touch those things that literature should be touching, right? Like, like Kid Johnson, things like mourning, sadness, and also happiness and joy, they're, they're small things, right? We have this romantic notion, you know, that started thousands of years ago, like this idea of emotions taking control of someone and swaying him, you know, like a mythical hero type of figure. But that's not how most of us experience emotion. That's not how most of us experience loss or history or stuff like that, right? It's, it's small for us. It's configured into our personal stories and our friends' stories and our family stories and the heritage that we came from and the place in which we live in, in, in small ways, right? So when we tell these stories massively, that has its own place in the world, right? And those stories are important, but it misses something. And that's where magic realism and these kind of, of tales can can come in. And Samatar is unequaled in her capacity and, and capability to channel these smaller stories, these smaller emotions, and make them mean something big. And and that's why, you know, this story will will stay with you as it has stayed with me and will continue to stay with me. I want to leave you with a song that's not metal in any way. I feel like it's kind of weird to end these solo episodes with metal, especially when I'm dedicating them to you know, weirder and smaller and maybe even softer stories. But this album is incredible. Um, you might know Josiah Wise from The Hacks and Cloak, where he makes weirder, more experimental and darker music. But he recently released an album as his side project, Serpent with Feet, all one word, called Deacon. And on this album, he channels gospel as well as R&B and hip-hop to an extent to create this very warm, this very lush-sounding album, right? And he also does a lot of things on it with blurring the lines between belief, love, heritage, contemporary terms, and culture. I want to play to you Amir, which is definitely about a lover, but also maybe about God. So this is Serpent with Feet with Amir. Okay. 
last time you cut a rug This low dancer to your rush What's the longest you held a grudge? Can we kiss, kiss after we fuss? When's the last time you cut a rug? I'm so warm, damn, I could say